Good morning. This is Pastor George here at Tuolumne Community Baptist Church. So glad that you've decided to tune in. We're starting something new today. We're going to do a verse-by-verse study on the book of 1 Corinthians, and then we get done with that, we're going to do the book of 2 Corinthians. I think that you'll really enjoy this. I'm not going to give you much right now because the starting of the message is basically the introduction to the book of Corinthians, so there's no much, not much sense of me wasting your time now by telling you the introduction. Just Let's just get started with the message. God bless you. I, I hope you enjoy. Come out and see us sometime. Thanks. Bye. I'm very excited because the book of Corinthians really hit me in the face. I mean, it's, this is real life. And he's going to give us some correction. It kind of slapped me around a little bit. And you have to understand, this wasn't the first letter the Apostle Paul ever wrote to the Corinthian church. If he had had been his first letter, it would have, this would have actually been 2 Corinthians, but we don't have it. But the apostle refers to it. He referred to it in 1 Corinthians 5, 9. He said, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Now, we're not going to talk about the sexually immoral people yet. We'll deal with that when we get to chapter 5. But the point that I'm trying to make is he wrote them a letter prior to this that we don't have. He makes this reverence, and it's obvious that the Holy Spirit did not approve it to be put into the Bible. We don't know why, but we don't have that letter. And I realize that most of us have read the books of 1 and 2 Corinthians probably more than once, and I feel it's a very interesting study of God's Word. And I mean what I say wholeheartedly when I say God's Word. This is just not letters wrote by the Apostle Paul to the Corinthian church, These are words that are inspired by the Holy Spirit and directed to this church here today. Can I get an amen? Amen. This is the living word of God that we're teaching. These letters Paul wrote to rebuke, correct, to direct, to exhort, as well as to encourage us, the churches, that he had planted there in a second missionary journey. This study is so prevalent for today, we could easily say these letters were wrote to the Californian churches. This is first Californians. I mean, there's so many similarities to Corinth and to California. It's it's absolutely amazing, and you'll see it as we go through. Not only did they have economic similarities of trade and commerce like we do here in California to the rest of the United States, the United States wouldn't have a hard time surviving without California. We feed our country. We feed the world. And Corinth had a huge part of the rest of the country and even the known world of its time of trade, just like we do here in California. But it was also a very open lifestyle where most everything goes. They had a saying. What happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. You know I'm just kidding. But we know that Corinth had become a place where immoral living was a part of everyday life. That's not so far different from California. You can take places in California, what things start in California and they have a way of gravitating throughout the rest of the world. 
The situation of Corinth and the character of his inhabitants, inhabitants was probably called was properly called a small destiny, a territory in Greece connected to Greece by this isthmus of land, this little land base that, that actually kept them from being an island. This little isthmus of land is what connected them to the mainland. So now it's like just this big peninsula that sits out there. It is a very unique in its location, right in the center of the known trade of its time. In fact, I want you to see this first map. This first map is more of a, a satellite view of the area. Corinth is on, you can see where that tail comes down and that little piece on the bottom, it's right in the center. You almost got your arrow, but move over this way. You almost there, uh, it's right there, right there. Nope, not there, yep, there you, you got it. Yeah, you're in the right place. There you go. This tract or region was not large in size. It possessed a few rich plains, but was generally uneven and the soil was in different quality. So it wasn't for its farming capabilities that made it so popular, but its location right in the middle of everything, everything with the seaports on both sides. Now let's go to the second map. This shows it a little more blow up view. You can see where Corinth is right on the, the section of that little piece of isthmus that goes from the mainland over near Athens to Corinth. That's where they were located. The city of Corinth was the capital of this region it stood near the middle of this isthmus, that narrow strip of land connecting the two larger areas, which in the narrowest part was about six miles wide. Can you imagine? From ocean to ocean, it was only about six miles between the two, through somewhat wider where Corinth actually stood. Some efforts were made by the Greeks to build a canal to affect communication between the Aegean Sea and the Adriatic Seas, cutting access through this isthmus. There are traces that still show today of their attempts. But there were other means designed to transport vessels across. Let's go to the next picture. They would actually drag vessels across. This was a, probably a, a depiction of the very first attempts of dragging using manpower to drag a ship across that six miles to get over to the other sea. The reason they would do that is they would have to travel some 250 to 300 miles around the most difficult, treacherous waters in that sea. We know that just not far off this is where the island of Malta was. We remember how difficult the seas were there. So they didn't want to make that 300-mile trek to get around to the other port, the other side. So they figured out, well, let's drag the boats across. You can see on the next picture, they got a little fancier with it. They actually built a, a road out of bricks and they put a wedge in there, something that they could drag along and put the boats on wheels and they would still use men to drag it and they would drag those boats over to the other side. But this didn't stay that way. The canal finally got built in the late 1890s. This is near our time. This is the canal that actually got built. They had many countries that came together that helped to build this thing. The problem that they did is they made it too narrow. You can see that ship going through there, and that's probably the biggest ship that could possibly fit through that thing. Today's ships are much too large to use this, this little narrow canal that they had dug, but they still use it. It's also used 
Um, but your tourists, you know, will use, the, they have these cruises that go through. And it's also one of the number one bungee, bungee jumping places in the world. I know that, you just had to know that. If you want to go bungee jumping, you go to Corinth, to the canal in Corinth. I don't know, it's something like a thousand feet. It's it's huge, huge area that they, they use for bungee jumping. The city had two harbors, Lyconium in the Gulf of Corinth and the Sea of Sessa, Ceresa in the west, and it joined up by a double wall. They had built this actual wall about a mile and a half in length and the Sea of Sharon on the, on the east, a distance of about nine miles. It was... It was a situation particularly favorable for commerce. They had all these communities that were gathered in, all around this area. And it was, they were right in the center of everything. And it was highly important to Greece. And they actually built their defense. Um, they built a, a navy that actually protected their commerce uh, for the merchandise of Italy, Sicily, and all the Western nations. Uh, let's see. There were other Oriental nations to the east. The city of Corinth thus became the Walmart of Asia, Europe, and that covered all those seas and the ships that would come through. So they formed a navy to protect it. It was the place to go. It was distinguished by its building uh, galleys of ships, a new improved form of ships, and its naval force earned its respect from other nations. Its population and its wealth were increased by the influx of foreigners. Now, how many know that that probably had a lot to do with the immoral living that we're going to see is coming out of the Corinth? Is it, it, people from all over the world are coming into this region, and they're seeing the commerce and wealth, so they would build a home there. They would stay there. It became a city rather distinguished by its wealth, its naval force, its commerce, and by its military achievements. You want to know what's left of Corinth today? Nearly nothing. The ruins of this once incredible city. I mean, there's still people there, but it's, it's no longer the center of, of the world, basically, of what it was in its day. Though it produced a few of the most valiant, distinguished leaders in the armies of Greece, its population was increased, but its character was somewhat formed from other circumstances greed and flesh. I'll show you a picture. The next picture is the temple. This is a, a, a re-picture, a, re a rebuilt picture of what the temple probably looked like, the temple that we're going to talk about. During, sadly, Corinth was also known for its vices, immorality, sexual sins were rampant due to this pagan temple called the Temple Aphrodite. And that's what that is, the Temple of Aphrodite, within its city limits. It was dedicated to the pagan goddess of Venus, i.e. dedicated to lust. The temple's illicit services employed more than a thousand plus women as prostitutes whom they referred to priestesses. The second temple, I'll show you the next picture, is basically with the ruins of it today that's still standing there. During Paul's second missionary journey in the summer of 50 AD, the Apostle Paul leaves Athens, travels to the city 
In it, he meets Priscilla and Aquila. We remember that from the book of Acts, a couple who greatly aided him in his ministry. When they discovered Paul was a tent maker, like themselves, they let him stay in his home. Now, you can imagine what Paul was thinking. He just came from Athens. You remember when he went from Athens? He was in Athens, and he was awestruck. All these gods that they had built. And finally, there was this one that the god of, you know, the statue to the unknown god. And so he addressed that unknown god. So then he travels on, and he goes through all these other little cities, and then he comes down to Corinth, and he's looking. I can only imagine what Paul's thinking when he first sees a city full of commerce and activity, full of itself and full of lust, I might have said, let's get out of here. If it were me, I'd take one look at the city of, of this type of immoral living, and I'd say, I said, we got to get out of here. That's what I might have said. But you know what, Paul, being the man he was, he said, this place needs a church. This place needs Jesus Christ. The book of Corinthians is all about Paul solving problems that had developed in the church that he'd planted there. Paul is not there. When he writes this letter, he's in Ephesus, and he gets a letter from someone named Chloe. Now, we're not sure. When I hear the name Chloe, I think if it's a woman's name. I had a female dog that was named Chloe. She's the best little dog I ever had. But Chloe, we're not sure whether it was a man or a woman. We just know that letter was wrote to Paul from Chloe, and telling him what is going on in the Corinthian church. There's some great distress in this letter. So he's addressing the things that were told to him by Chloe in this first book of the Corinthians. Before we get to chapter one, I wanna break down some of the problems Paul is going to address into the church of this book of 1 Corinthians. Chapters one and two, he approaches disunity. Now, how many want to agree that Jesus was all about unity? You guys remember what he said before when he was being arrest, resurrected, when he was being taken up in the sky? Have unity, to unify. Be like God is with me, you be with others. Be unified. And so the Apostle Paul was addressing disunity in the church. Some would say there were people that say, I am of Capius, and I am of Apollos, or I am of Paul. They had ideas of their salvation, of how they came to know Christ. You know, it's not so different from today. We have churches today that'll, that are so different than, than we are. And we're going to address that. It, it, the Apostle Paul addresses all these differences in the different churches. But it's really kind of interesting. We'll see this in chapter 1. Some would say, I am a Paul, and I am of Capius. Capius was actually Peter. Capius means rock, is what that name means, and it was Peter, or I am of Apollos. Now, I could see that, you know, some of them were, were very stringent in their thinking. Uh, Paul was a Pharisee. He was a Jew of the Jews. He had knowledge of the Old Testament, and people say, yeah, I like that Paul. He'll preach it the way it is and give it to me even if I don't like it, and so I am of Paul. And then there were others that were saying, I am of Capius, of Peter. Well, Peter, what was he? He was a blue-collar guy. He's a fisherman. He's bumbling around. He didn't go to college. He didn't know anything. Well, I like Peter. He's, he's kind of more real to life. I understand him. He's like that Pastor George over there. He says things that I understand. I, I, his speaking isn't quite eloquent. It isn't, you know, like other, you know, theological seminary students. 
I kind of like that. So I am of, I'm of Peter. And then they had this Apollos. Apollos was an incredible guy that got saved. Kind of, he, was, he was a Jew, and he, he understood the Jewish religion, but he kind of came later in the scene. But he was well-educated. He was very formal. And he would say all the right words at the right time. They'd say, yeah, I like Apollos, you know, because he's, he's right there. I understand everything he's saying. Well, do you see that today? People, churches today, or, or ourselves will go, well, I like that TV evangelist. I like that guy. That's who I listen to. I have my favorites that I listen to. I'm not going to tell you who either. But I do. I have people that I like to listen to. And, and, but I'm not, certainly not going to go around saying I'm of that type of religion. I'm of that type of faith. But that's what was going on. This was a problem, and it was causing disunity in the church. People hearing different things and wanting it a different way. Chapters 2, 3, and 4, that's all about immaturity. And it's a very important subject. I asked the question, what would life be like if we didn't mature as Christians? Can you imagine being a born-again believer, believer and never, never growing? Never really making the effort yourself to get into God's Word. There's a lot of them out there. People that just, they just are. Paul describes them, and we're going to be introduced to these people. One is the natural man. Another one is the unnatural man, and number three is the supernatural man. The unnatural man, we know who that is. That's someone without Christ. He is the the natural man. Now, the unnatural man is a person who has Christ, who's accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, but he's never grown. He's just stayed kind of in that same spot. He kind of has one foot in the world and one foot in Christianity. He's kind of in between both things. He's not really sure who he is or what he's doing. Paul puts a name on it. And he says it's carnal believing. He calls them carnal believers. That's the unnatural man. Now, the supernatural man is very important. This is people who have accepted Jesus Christ. They bought the whole program. We're learning and growing and developing Christ just like we are here. Amen? Amen. That's what we're trying to do is develop to be that supernatural man that God has called it to be. The third problem comes in chapter five. And number three, it's impurity. He talks about impurity. Of course, we know the Corinthian church is full of impurity, but this is what's interesting. When we read it, you'll see that he wasn't referring to the Corinthian, Corinthian, Corinth. He was referring to the Corinthian church. He said there was a lot of impurity that was going on. He's referring to the church. And this is the first time that he institutes church discipline. Oh, I don't know, Pastor. We're not going to talk about that, are we? Well, yeah. It's in the Word of God, and he institutes church discipline. And we're going to talk about that. And as well as church discipline, later he goes back and says, Hey, you know that guy that we sent out of the church because of his immoral living? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's now time to invite him back. We need to forgive him because he has asked God to forgive. He's changed his ways. He's decided, yeah, this was really wrong, this immoral living. And so we're also called, when we talk about church discipline, there's the other side of that, is are you willing to forgive and bring them back into the body of Christ? And we need to. Chapter 6 and 7 bring us to number 4. And he gives us a mandate. Stay pure until you're married, 
and stay married until you're dead. Can I get an amen? Stay pure until you're married. I mean, that's just the basics of what he's talking about. And, and he's telling us, stay pure until you're married. And if you can't, you got to get married. If you're one of those like the Apostle Paul, he never married. And he was able to stay pure. He was married to Christ, is what he felt that he was. So let's go to number seven. Chapter seven, Paul addresses marital infidelity now it ties up very much so with number four marital infidelity it's a very important subject you think well we got to talk about it in church well whether we need to or not we're going to folks we're going to talk about it and we need to talk about it. you need to be open chapters 8 through 10 paul attacks another problem i'm going to spend a little time here because we need to understand this personal liberty this is a very interesting area, a problem. This is one that Paul was addressing because this is what the problem he was addressing in his letters. The Corinthians were buying meat from the market that was first sanctified to idols, sacrificed to idols. They were buying the meat and taking it home and barbecuing. And others in the church were having a major problem with this, and they were wanting to know, Paul, you've got to address this. Now, we're going to talk about this when we get to chapters 8 through 10. We're going to spend a lot of time on personal liberties. And I want to be very careful because I want you to understand what I say when I say it. Is you may not agree with something I think or something that I believe. It doesn't mean that you're wrong. It means we have personal liberties and we need to be careful of how we use our personal liberties. Because what you do can affect other people. It's an interesting story that I had to look up. You ever heard of Charles Hayden Spurgeon? One of the great Baptists, quote, Baptist guys. He was born in 1834. He lived till 1892. So what is that, 60 years approximately? Highly influential amongst Christians, various denominations. He was part of the Reformed Baptist and he was defending the 1689 London Baptist Convention of Faith and opposed liberal and pragmatic theology tendencies in the church of that day in the 1800s. Well, we have that going on today, don't we? The same thing, even in our Baptist denomination has things that have crept in and we're all going, no, this can't be, we gotta go vote against it. Allegedly, Charles Spurgeon invited D.L. Moody to speak at an event he hosted. Moody accepted and preached the entire message about the evils of tobacco and why the Lord doesn't want Christians to smoke. What you don't understand is Spurgeon was an avid cigar smoker. He smoked cigars. He was an avid cigar smoker and was surprised that he, it seemed like a cheap shot leveled to him by Moody using the pulpit to condemn a fellow minister violating an issue of his personal conscience, Moody's conscience. So after the message, when Moody was finished preaching, Spurgeon walked up to him to the platform and said, Mr. Moody, I'll put down my cigars when you put down your fork. Well, D.L. Moody was a large man. 
If you think I'm big, he made me look small. He was about 400 pounds. He was a big man. So Moody was overweight. So the point of that story is be careful the next time you take offense to another believer because you deem what they're doing or saying is wrong, sinful, or inappropriate, when in fact they're merely violating a personal or subjective standard of yours, of yours. Some would say, well, one who listens to rock and roll music is going to hell. It's of the devil. And judges one who listens to this uh, rock and roll music but is totally obsessed with football and won't go to church when his team's playing. Okay? Another person believes that watching football is of the devil, but he drinks wine. And a person who believes that drinking wine is sinful, oh, I can't believe I'm a, it says this, and I didn't write this, Jim, but it says as a registered Democrat. Okay, we'll, we'll skip that. We'll skip that. And the person who believes that the Democratic Party is of the devil kills animals for, re, for, for, for recreation. What am I trying to say? I'm spending a lot of time trying to say it, is don't place on somebody else what you think is wrong. Now, am I saying that it's good? I'm so proud of Janice because she put smoking down. Hey, and guess what? D.L. Moody did finally quit smoking. He died of a young man, never did find out what he died from. But before his dying days, he was able to put down the cigar smoking because he was convicted by the Holy Spirit in himself. And the one thing that he would share, and he would share it, is every time I took a drag off my cigar, I praised God for it because he enjoyed it. It was something that was his personal preference. Paul here took a very practical stand and basically said to you, if you're going to go buy that meat, take it home and cook it in your own privacy. Don't take it down to the church and barbecue at the church and say, hey, I got this great deal from this meat sacrificed to idols. If you don't have a problem with it, I don't have a problem with it. But if it causes someone else to stumble, then you should be concerned. So, Pastor, are you saying, well, anything goes? No, I'm not saying that at all. But have you ever, when I was a kid, see, the Apostle Paul didn't have to deal with a lot of stuff that we have to deal with in our culture. When I was a kid and my parents got saved and started taking us to that Pentecostal church where we grew up in, it was a sin if we went to the movies. Anybody remember? It was a sin to go to the movies. You do not go to the movies, you know, if, if you're a Christian. It's just something you don't do. Oh, how about the dance, the high school dance? Oh, my God, you're listening to that music. Oh, you, it's just so horrible. Don't do that to your kids. Lead them and guide them in the things of the Word of God, but you don't have to put what you think upon them. It, it, it was devastating to see the things that we had went through as, as kids, and then I grew up as an adult, and I go, well, wait a minute. The passion of Christ is R-rated. And it was such a big deal. You couldn't see an R-rated movie. Well, that movie was the passion of Christ. Use your own good common sense. There are certain things that we do and we don't do, and certainly don't do in public, because it could cause someone else to stumble. Can I get an amen? amen. I have no problem with drinking. drinking. I have the liberty. I can drink all that I want. I choose not to. 
Because the Apostle Paul tells us, and he's going to tell us in this chapter, why would I partake of something that would overpower me, that would change the way I think, it would change the way I act? Why would I be part of that? My mentor, the man who led me back to Christ, he, people would ask him, well, because he would go to bars and he would minister to people in bars, and he'd, but he never drank. And he'd, well, why don't you drink? He said, why would I want to participate in what's causing all your problems? Why would I want to participate in that? Because all the problems you're dealing with is because of alcohol. So I just, I am going to sustain from that. I'm not, do I think having a beer on a hot summer day is bad? No, I don't. And don't hide it from me if I pop over your house and you're having a beer. Relax and have a beer. You better offer me one before you hide it from me. Because it's not about that. It's not about me putting on you what I'm saying. Oh, you're going to go to hell if you do that. In other words, don't cause someone else to stumble because you don't see it to be a problem like he or she does. It's called loving your neighbor. Amen? Today we are forced with a lot of these gray areas that Paul never had to deal with. You know, here's, here's one that, you know, okay, it's not drinking. But a lot of people will say, well, God's gift to humanity is marijuana. It's not chemically based at where it's cooked in a kitchen. It's grown out of a seed. It comes out of the ground. That's God's gift. All right. All right. Is it causing you to think differently? Is it causing you problems? I'll attack the problems with it, not with the marijuana itself. I had one guy that I was counseling, and he was an avid marijuana smoker, and, and he came to me, and he said, and as he was sitting there, he was tapping his leg like that the whole time. And when he got to talking about marijuana, he was just vibrating. He just knew I was going to condemn him, and I didn't condemn him. And I said, you know what, but maybe doing that a little bit less could help you think clearly and help you move in towards the things of God. I'm not going to condemn a person because they see one thing one way and I see it another. Is a person going to go to hell because they smoke marijuana or because they smoke cigarettes? No. It's a condition of the heart. It's what's in the heart. And if your heart has really changed, you'll begin to question those things. Should I continue with this? Should I continue smoking my cigarettes? I'll never forget my mentor, Pastor Craig Andrus. I'll say your name and you hear it over the air. Maybe he'll hear it. But when I first was getting into ministry, first getting involved out at the racetrack, I said, Pastor, you've never said anything about my smoking because I still smoked. And he turned and he looked at me and he goes, is that a problem? I said, well, what do you mean? He goes, are you smoking while you're reading the word? And I said, well, of course not. No, I'm not doing that. And he said, well, are you like blowing it in people's faces? What, where is the problem? And I said, well, I thought you would think less of me, you know, and thought that I should quit smoking. He says, I do think you should quit smoking for your health so that you don't die before your time. That's why I want you to quit smoking. It has nothing to do with your relationship between you and God. And obviously you brought it up. The Holy Spirit's dealing with you. Deal with that, buddy. And I said, you know what? You're absolutely right. And that's when I quit. That's when I, because somebody wasn't telling me, oh, this is bad. You've got to stop this. If you're going to be a Christian, you've got to do this and do that. No. When I realized that it was affecting my testimony, that it affected what other people might think, that's when I was able to quit 
And it was a real struggle, Janice. It was a major struggle. It took a long time. Praise God, I'm past it now. So we're going to talk a lot about personal liberties when we get to it. The next problem we come to is number seven. He addresses the worship community. The proper use would be spiritual gifts in the church. The subject is one that has divided so many churches in today's culture. I'm not one who believes the spiritual gifts were for the church for back then, 2,000 years ago. I believe all of God's gifts are alive and strong and here today for the church. Can I get an amen, Baptist church? I believe that my position is best described with one word, and that's called balance. I believe that we are to be balanced in the gifts of God. God is a God of order and balance, and he does things in order. I'm caught between two groups that I hang out with. My Pentecostal friends, they say I'm way too conservative with my views on the movement of the Holy Spirit. Then I have my Baptist friends who say that I'm way too Pentecostal for their taste. I mean, they see it and they know it. They say to me, you got to figure out where you stand. Are you a charismatic or are you a fundamentalist? And I simply say, guys, I don't know. I think I'm a fundamatic. I'm in the middle. I mean, really? I have to choose? And they start laughing to me. My pastors that I meet on Thursday morning, and they start laughing. They go, no, man, you don't have to choose. You're right where you need to be. You're fine. You're fine. Okay, because you offered me to sit at the table, okay? And I'm going to tell you my views. There are diversities in churches, and it's not a bad thing. We need to realize that there are churches that do things different than the way we do it. Could you imagine if we were all the same? All the churches, I mean, what if we were all the same? What a boring bunch of people we would be. If we were just all the same, we'd have the same thoughts, same thing, do the same thought. We'd all probably kill ourselves. I don't, there's nothing new under the sun. There's nothing, we're all the same, and the same thing with churches. But then we're going to get to number eight, and he talks about doctrinal clarity. This is another very important. The Apostle Paul, when we get down to probably chapters 15 and 16, we're going to see He's going to give us an absolute clarity in what we are to believe. And we're to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. I don't care that they do things differently than we do. What I do care is that they believe in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They can put whatever sign they want over the front of their church as long as they believe that. That's when I say I'm a brother with you. I'm in service with you because you believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I don't care if you're Lutheran or Methodist or Catholic even, as long as you believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Without the resurrection, where would we be? If Christ, and Paul says this quite plainly, we're going to see it. If Christ didn't die, what are we doing here? Boy, is this just a social club? I mean, I like you guys. Okay, 
but I could join a social club for a lot less than I tithe, you know, and have a lot of fun. We have to believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Amen? Amen. So, Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. Now, I'm looking at the clock. Uh, I can pick this up right here next week, and we can go enjoy some really good food, or you can give me another 25 minutes or so, and I'll give you chapter 1. About, we want to stay. There's two, three, four, five, 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 six. You sure you want to go eat? You want to go eat and come back, and I can preach to you while you eat? Why don't you go halfway through? Halfway through. All right. First Corinthians 1. 1 1 says, Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother. Now, that's kind of interesting. Sosthenes was the chief ruler of the synagogue in Corinth who accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. I don't know if you remember him. Uh, Crispus was another one that was one of those chief guys in the Jewish church that accepted Jesus Christ. And I'm sure that Sothenins must have been there and he wanted to include him and my brother Sothenins. I just love that. Verse 2 says, To the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, both theirs and ours. And you know, we're just getting into it, just breaking into it, and the Apostle Paul is showing us clearly that we're all brothers and sisters in Christ if we believe that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior. Verse 3 says, To you and peace from God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God, which is given to you by Christ Jesus. Verse five, that you were enriched in everything by him in all utterance and knowledge. So he's telling them, you guys have been given everything. You know, I, I, I spent a year and a half there. And I know the people that I've left teaching you, like, like Apollos has been teaching you well. Verse six, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you. Verse 7, so that you come short of no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, right there, people, you should take that. He's talking to us. Or right there in the Bible again. I keep pointing you out where you're at. You're there. And by the way, I know that I put all the scriptures on on the wall behind me, but beings, we're going to be in Corinthians. We're going to be going verse by verse. You can bring your own Bibles and be reading your own Bibles and marking it away. I so appreciate that. I got, I got Bob back there just reading his Bible, and that's good. Because, you know, like when I, this whole thing, putting the scriptures up behind me, all started when I was doing a topical, and I would go from, you know, Revelation over to Deuteronomy, and it's like, oh, it take us half hour to get there. So I just put it up on the screen. But it's okay to read your Bibles, to bring your Bibles to church. I appreciate it when you do and be looking at your Bible as we're going through this. What verse am I on? Eight. eight. Verse eight, who will conform you to the end that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ? Who will also conform you to the end? Which means we're still working on this. 
You're not perfect yet, David. Sorry. Not yet. But you're working on it. You're working on it. And he will conform us to be just like him in that day. Verse 9 says, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. He's talking directly to us. Verse 10, now I plead with you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there are no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and the same judgment. I love this. I absolutely love this. And I, I feel I've pastored other churches and I, I feel we are more unified in this than any other place that I've ever been. We're thinking the same way and we're willing to listen and willing to grow and wanting to know more. That's what's so powerful about this little church. Ten times out of the last ten verses, he uses the name our Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that impressive? I mean, in ten verses... Ten times he uses the name of Christ. Verse 11, For this has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household. Remember me telling you about Chloe? That, are, there, are, that there are contentions among you. Verse 12, Now I say this to each of you, says, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cappius, or I am of Christ. You say, well, Pastor, we don't do that. Really? How many people, you know, say, well, I'm a Methodist. Well, I'm a Baptist. I go to the Baptist church. I'm a Pentecostal. I'm of Jesus Christ. Those are the real holy rollers. And the ones that are saying, I'm of Jesus Christ, they're, 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 they elevate them better than everybody else. That's the divisions among us. I don't want there to be divisions, and I see that more in my world today with the pastor friends, our, all of our Baptist pastors that we get together. We are, are we not, Tony, unified? Oh, yeah. We're all thinking the same thing. We're, we're going the same direction, and we're pulling for Christ. And that's, and it, it, I met with the Seventh-day Adventist pastor at the last luncheon we had. What a great guy he is. Now, maybe he thinks I'm going to hell because I'm here on Sunday. I don't know. If he does, that's his problem. But he's a great guy, and he teaches the living Word of God. I, I know. I know there are differences. But this is the same thing that he was talking about 2,000 years ago is happening today. People are arguing about who they follow. Is Christ divided? Verse 13. Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? So he goes into quite detail here, trying to convince them that he really didn't baptize very many people. He says, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Capius and Gaius. Least anyone should say that I have baptized in my own name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephens, Besides, I do not know whether I baptize any other. Verse 17, for, I did not, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. I'm trying to tell you guys what the Lord has told me to say. Not because I'm so brilliant with my words, with the wisdom of man's wisdom, Verse 18 says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, 
but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Can I get an amen? But to us, I love it, who are being saved. Who's doing that? To us who are being saved. I thought maybe it was God speaking. (laughs) Saying, it's time to eat, it's time to eat. But anyway, what was I saying? It's foolishness to the rest of the world, is what he's saying. But to us who are being saved, we're being transformed, we're growing. We're growing and developing in Christ. It is the power of God. He goes on to say, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Verse 20, where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not, has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God. It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Do you realize how foolish the gospel really sounds to an unbeliever? Pretty doggone foolish. Yeah, he's washed by the blood. What? What are you guys doing over there? What? It's the foolishness because they don't understand and we're called to live it an example, a living example before them. Verse 22. I didn't skip one, did I? Um, it said, verse 22, for the Jews request a sign and the Greeks seek after wisdom. Verse 23, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews as a stumbling block and to the Greeks as foolishness. This is what we really do. We preach Christ crucified. And to those, it becomes a stumbling block. I can't, I, nobody died for my sins. I, they stumble on that. And to the Greeks, they say it's just absolutely foolishness to those who are really smart. Verse 24, but those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Verse 25, and because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Verse 26, for you see your calling, brethren, that you may, you, that not many wise, according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many normal, noble are called. I read this last week and it hit me. According to the flesh, not many mighty, well, that's, that's not, I'm, and not many noble. I was never very noble. I was never very wise. The foolishness. God uses the foolishness. He uses the things that, that others would say. There's no way. I was telling Jim this morning, we were talking in my office, and I said, Jim, there are still people out there who don't know that I am now a pastor from my past. If I go to a class reunion as Pastor George, they're going to fall out. Because, because there's no way. There's no way that you could possibly be a pastor. By God, I knew you couldn't read in high school, let alone be a pastor. What are you talking about? What? Let's go have a beer. And I'll say, no. Let's go have some tomato juice. I don't know. Whatever. But they would not believe it. 
Verse 27, we're almost done. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame of the things which are mighty. Praise God. Verse 28, and the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. The things that the world has cast aside and says is not worth anything, God has said, that's what I'll use. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. The Apostle Paul is really putting it out there. Verse 29, that no flesh should glorify in his presence. I cannot glorify God and my massive abilities to bring the living word of God to you. It's all him. I'm struggling with my reading this morning. That's because Satan just doesn't want me to preach this. He wants to get after me and, and, and mess it all up. But God uses the weak things that no flesh should glory in his presence. Verse 30, but of him, but of him you are in Christ Jesus who became for us the wisdom from God and the righteousness and the sanctification and redemption. That is, that as it is written, he who glorifies, let him glory in the Lord. Amen? That wasn't bad. Got through that pretty quick. And I wasn't trying to hurry. Because we don't want to hurry on the living word of God. This, you're going to really, you may get mad at me sometime or another through this. That pastor over there, he says it's okay to do such and such and such and such. But I'm not going to tell you that, you know what? You're missing the point. If he resides within you, the Holy Spirit will direct you and guide you. And you will know what you think you should not do. You should not do, especially in public, because you could potentially false cause someone to stumble. Amen.